Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In 1965, in Subterranean Blues, uh, Bob Dylan famously wrote and and sang, uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. But sometimes weathermen can be actually quite valuable in determining which way the wind blows, has blown, and will blow. Um, Eric Holthaus is a, a Midwestern meteorologist, a weatherman, who has made a career uh, out of um, not only identifying the weather itself, but the future of the planet. He has a new book, an important new book called The Future Earth, which imagines the world in 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050, if indeed we do fix our uh, environmental crisis. Uh, Eric, um, your book is optimistic, but it begins with a warning. It begins with uh, a warning essentially about an environmental apocalypse, one that's much more dramatic and worrying than even the coronavirus. Are we on the verge of destroying our planet if we don't act now? Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I think, uh, you know, that was a tough decision to put that scene at the beginning of the book. Um, I think uh, what I wanted to do there was to sort of hook people in in the language that they've been used to hearing about the climate uh, uh, emergency. Um to sort of talk about the intersections between the weather and, and society as a, uh, as a whole um, and understanding how we are really intimately connected with uh, the atmosphere through, you know, billions of people's decisions over hundreds of years have been concentrated now into a carbon dioxide concentration number. Um, it's a weird number that counts for a lot, um, counts for uh, the injustice in the way our society has been structured so far for since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and even before. So um, I do think that on our current path, without changing much, we will uh go headfirst into an unlivable world and unlivable for um the majority of the people on the planet not unlivable for the people who have sort of engineered this system for themselves and for their own benefit so far that's the status quo that we have right now we're heading in that direction and so there should be a warning i think we have felt that warning over the last 18 months or so as We've given um, more and more attention to people on the front lines of the climate uh, emergency and realized the, inter- the, the overlap between, for example, um, communities that live in, uh, in, um, in and around oil refineries and have, have been um, 
dealing with um, uh, toxic water and air for for decades or people that live in California dealing with wildfires or people that live in Bangladesh and have are dealing with record uh, cyclones these people are are at the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic as well as um, the climate emergency and those are overlapping crises if enough crises overlap at once I feel like it will be a breaking point. We've seen a, a glimpse of that this year, but I think there is room definitely for it to get a lot worse than what it is right now. So to quote Dylan again, we're, we're, we're knocking on the door of Armageddon Street. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's true. And that's actually, uh, this is not a conversation about Dylan, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's my quote from uh, his new song, his 2020 song, My Own Version of You. So, Eric, um, your book is a warning, but it's also cheerful. It's in imagining a better future. Map out your book. What, 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 what is the point of, um, of the book? Why did you write it, The Future Earth? Thank you um, for that question. I think that the main intervention I want to make um, in in putting this book out there in the world is to uh, think of a new narrative of the human project, really. I mean, it goes right down to the core of what we are doing here on the planet. Um, I think that right now um, we think of the climate emergency in particular of as sort of an inevitable looming uh, apocalypse or or a, or a dystopia that we're heading towards that feels um, too big for any one person to make any measurable change in. And I think it's that way by design um, that those stories have been told that way on purpose. So it's very rare to see a climate book that approaches um, the conversation from the, from the uh, explicit um, you know, thought that that is not inevitable. That is not, there's nothing <laughs> written in our DNA that says that that is what, where we're headed. So I want to, to give some space and give some meaning to, to help, uh, uh, put a vision out there where, um, where we choose to take a different path, where we choose to, uh, sort of rethink why we're here, um, my answer in the book for why we're here is that we are here to help each other uh, live a good life. Really, that's all it is. I mean, and that's what money is a stand-in for that. You know, capital is a stand-in for that. All of our political systems are a stand-in for that. I think that um, if we are really looking at clear eyes with with the situation that we have on the planet right now, we will realize that there are better ways to, to do that project. There are better ways to, um, to, um, to make sure everyone's voices are heard and not only heard, but prioritized. I think that um, one of the best things that we can do right now is to talk about our vision for uh, own individually and as communities, our vision for, what is what world are we trying to build? What are we trying to do here? And I think that we would find, if we did that, we would find we have a lot more in common and a lot um, uh, more consensus uh, for radical change than we tend to think. 
So that's the, the map of the, the, the future Earth. And again, just to, to go back to that original song, uh, the, 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 the book um, is an experiment really in controlling the way the wind blows. You're imagining the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, and 2050s if we do the right things, if we make those choices which actually result in saving the Earth rather than destroying it. So, so Eric, we don't have a lot of time here, but quite briefly, perhaps you might map out this imaginary future, not not Armageddon Street, but actually the reverse. What, what has to happen and what will it look like? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the book is is structured in a long, a long introduction, a long uh, part one where for about a third of the book, we talk, I talk about um, the context for where we are in that, um, in that our decisions um, in this liminal space of history, we are in a sort of uncharted territory now where the old world is sort of clearly broken, but we don't have uh, a stand in yet for what is coming next. So it is up to us uh, individually and collectively to to sort of articulate those visions. And this is just one possible vision. It's, it's absolutely not going to happen. It's a weird blend of nonfiction and fiction um, for the remaining two thirds of the book. Um, but something like it will happen, um, I, I, I strongly think. Um, I, I, I think that, so, I divide. Let's, yeah. So let, let's start with the twenties. Let's, yeah. let's all close our eyes, except yeah. Eric, because sure. he's, he's the storyteller here. I can even do this in, in the literary device that I use in the book. I, I talk from the future uh, reporting on what has happened. Um, what, what, um, what steps were taken to get us to, to the point where we're um, thriving again. So yes. in, the, in the 2020s, we have, um, we have instituted a Green New Deal in the United States and sort of looked uh, all around um, the economy on where we can, um, where we can, what I, I think what I try to call creative destruction, we can creatively destroy the, some systems in place that are not working and, and start to um, put into place systematic guarantees of, of, um, of uh of like for example um uh universal housing and healthcare and um and uh sort of shifting ra- rapidly towards um zero carbon electricity and zero carbon um um buildings these are all solutions that we're familiar with now but i think if we do it in the context or if we we will have done it in in the context of a a a growing unstoppable social movement so once the climate movement realized that that it was a part of a broader search for justice i think that was the game changer in the early 2020s we could see um uh, this rapidly growing consensus of the climate uh, emergency as as a symptom rather than a cause of of injustice. So, uh, in general, I think by shifting to solutions focused on um, seeking justice for people who have been excluded uh, up until this point, that's where the breakthrough in the climate uh, action came from. So, and then jumping forward to the twenty thirties. Um, 
once we sort of peaked emissions in the late 2020s, we were able to start to finally have some space to build the kind of alternative system that will uh, begin to make sure that that um, that no one is left out of this progress and, and this prosperity. So we we started um, revamping our our economies both nationally and internationally to focus not on um, making money and um, exponential growth on a finite planet, but on guarantees of well-being, which is really what it's all about anyway. This is a uh, you know the project of humanity is a is to try to get. Uh, as many people as possible to live, to be able to live a good life, the tools that we need to, to thrive. Um, so by instituting um, what I call a circular economy here, what other scholars have called a circular economy, um, we're focused on um, sort of ending this cycle of, of extraction and in, in, um, waste and exploitation and try to think about um, our resources more um, more thoughtfully, more creatively, and that has unlocked billions of people's uh, potential around the world. Um, you know, throughout um, throughout Africa and Asia and Latin America, there are these thriving communities now of creative people and creative uh, solutions for figuring out from the ground up what does. Um, human society look like in a world where we are consciously focusing on well-being rather than on 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 money. Eric, uh, uh, yeah, in this in this dream, because it is a dream, it's a very attractive <laughs> one. The the opposite of Armageddon Street. Um, do you imagine a moment in the twenty twenties where suddenly everyone wakes up to to Armageddon Street? Do they recognize that? We continue to blow uh, towards the apocalypse. We're all doomed. Is this a, a political moment, a revolution, or is it just a slow consciousness that everybody in Asia and Africa and Europe and, and, and America suddenly recognizes? I think that it's a struggle. I think that it's an ongoing struggle. I think that it's not going to happen overnight, but it will at the same time happen much more quickly than people expect. Um, I think that that there will be, um, and I do trace it back to this a moment that we're in right now, where we're starting to think of the climate um, emergency as more of a a, a justice issue. So, um, in that, when you look um, throughout uh, the last hundred years or so of of history of social movements, um, Harvard uh, political uh, scientist Erica Shenoweth, who I have uh, um, referenced her research in this book, um, has found that by looking at nonviolent um, movements um, around the world, uh, once they reach a critical mass of about three and a half percent of the population in the streets, non-cooperating, refusing to participate in the broken system, uh, their demands have been met. Um, 100% of the time by the, the sort of people who are there, they're asking uh, change or re- 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 demanding change from. So we are at that point right now. Uh, the youth climate strike movement, which had to stop because of the, the pandemic, um, 
in New Zealand, they reached that three and a half point percent uh, mark last fall. Um, the government within a few weeks um, uh, signed into law a new comprehensive climate bill. Uh, and they've been at the forefront of uh, addressing the pandemic as well. So we have examples of where this is already working. It's already started uh, what, I, what I'm talking about. So it is a dream. But it's a dream only in the sense that I imagine it, it expanding around the world. It's already there. Eric, imagine then briefly the 2040s and 50s. How will this dream sure. unfold if we make the right decisions um, in the 2020s and 30s? What will the world look like in the 2040s and 50s? This is something you lay out in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and what happens really is that um, this is uh, going back to... Uh, the, the best available climate science um, from the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, says that if we reduce global emissions 50% um, each decade uh, until, until 2050, uh, we will have uh, done the hard work of, of, of meeting uh, the, the, the target in Paris of warming of no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's the goal is to, to halt warming. Uh, but we've already set in motion tipping points around the world. You know, right now in the Siberian Arctic, there are temperatures that have not been seen before by humans living there. Um, we have um, earlier this year uh, in the Great Barrier Reef uh, experienced the third massive global bleaching or the third massive bleaching event of the coral there. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef is dying. You know, it's on its deathbed. Um, that is something that that uh, can't be reversed in our lifetimes. Um, we've had massive wildfires, you know, in in countries around the world. In the Amazon last year, um, has one of the worst fire seasons there on record. So these uh, these escalating extreme weather events will continue. Um, there's about a thirty to fifty year lag in extreme weather. Uh, as correlated to um, to carbon emissions. So even though we have done tremendous work by the 2040s, um, we will still be faced with escalating extreme weather as the planet catches up. Um, so what I imagine in the book is that in the late 2030s, there is a partial collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And sea levels around the world rise by two or three feet uh, over a span of about 10 years. Um, that sort of puts the world economy again in chaos where coastal cities around the world have to um, evacuate and we are caring for each other again in uh, an emergency, but we've spent 20 years preparing for this moment. We knew that this was going to happen and we have the structures in place to, to, um, to rehome refugees in communities where they are prioritized, their needs are met. Um, they are citizens. They have not lost their, their citizenship of the country that, where they came from. The United Nations has declared uh, uh, that climate refugees have legal status, which doesn't currently exist in 2020. Um, and then by the 2050s, we will we will find that we are embarking on this sort of new phase of humanity where we have shown ourselves that over the past 30 years, 
we were able to handle one of the gravest crises in human history. And we ended up in the end um, with a world that was even better than what we left behind. And that has inspired us to, you know, all sorts of things that I can't even imagine right now, because it's very hard. Even as I was writing this book, it was very hard for me to imagine what that would be like, because it's just so different than than where we are right now. But taken in uh, the sum total of all the steps that we've taken to get there, it feels plausible. Uh, Eric, I don't want everyone to think that the book is pure science fiction. Um, some of it is very personal. You're currently um, a meteorologist based in St. Paul, Minnesota, but you grew up in Kansas. And there's a strong Midwestern element to the book. Um, you, we might end with your story of your son and your father and the anecdote of how you woke up finally to why this is such a profound existential crisis, because all existential crisis, by definition, are profound uh, in, uh, in, 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 a, in a Kansas winter, in the deep freeze of a Kansas winter uh, with your father and your son, this strongly sort of concrete experience um, generationally and geographically, what woke you up to, to why we need to act now? Yeah, that um, it was it was such a strong moment. And maybe at the time, I didn't even realize how important it was to me. Um, we were out uh, for a walk. Uh, and my son at the time was, I think, only two or three. Um, so this was his first time walking on the ice. We had been living up until that point in Arizona. Um, my dad and I were having a conversation um, and, and him saying, this just doesn't happen anymore here. Um, that um, the the pond freezing over, um, uh, there was a beaver that we saw um, that was burrowing in through the ice. Um, and I just started to think like, um, are these animals forgetting who they, who they are in some ways? Like, am I forgetting who I am? Um, what, you know, like even in the span of my dad's lifetime, um, his, his experience, um, um, being intimately connected to the animals um, um, and, and the plants that where he grew up um, has changed profoundly. Um, I'm wondering if, well, you know, like really like sort of hit a fearful moment. Um, what what my son's life would be like, what things will he forget um, or not even be exposed to anymore? And it's just sort of this this sense of what I call the pre-traumatic stress syndrome, which is not unique to me. I think that anyone who has really contemplated more than just for uh, a few minutes or so about the state of uh, the climate emergency has probably felt something similar to this, just saying uh, it's really something that we don't enjoy confronting. And, and so I guess that was my conscious choice at that moment to to confront this, uh, the situation and try to make sure that, um, that this was a, um, this was a lived emotional response for me. And I wanted to make sure that I am acknowledging that sort of trauma that people are going through uh, as a barrier to action so far, because it's so unpleasant that we just block it out. And I think right. by engaging with that trauma, 
through all sorts of, you know, methods that psychologists, sociologists, social workers have given us, um, that will help us to to uh, imagine a path forward. Everyone should, of course, read um, uh, Eric's uh, new book, uh, The Future Earth, which is a, a, an unusual mix of meteorological science fiction and uh, Midwestern confession uh, and uh, autobiography. Uh, they should, of course, also listen to Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues, which I'm sure everybody already has, as well as his brilliant new album, um, of which uh, which uh, my own version of you is on. In addition to all that, Eric, that's a bit of a mouthful. What You're stuck in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota during this lockdown. What else should people be reading briefly, or what are you reading to keep you sane, to keep your your mind on, 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 on greener, excusing the, the silly um, environmental pun here, greener pastures in the future or even the past? Yeah, I think um, uh, two very different books that maybe sort of end up in the same place. Um, I think Octavia Butler's um, uh, Parable of the Sower is very important for this time as a cautionary tale. Um, and I think that uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's um, braiding sweetgrass is also grown into a, an extremely important book for this time in in talking about um, how we uh, how we feel uh, about history uh, and how we create um, history as we go. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.